On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 80 of the See Here podcast. My name's Morris Bostinski. Normally, I'd be introducing my two co-hosts, Mr. Tim Merrill over in Brantford, Ontario, and Mr. Bernard Stickwell over in Bath in England. Neither of them are available for this episode. As you know, Tim is on sabbatical and Bernie had a timetable clash. So we'll be uh, welcoming them both back in 2021. And this is a very exciting episode for a whole bunch of reasons. This episode marks seven years exactly of the See Here podcast. It would have been nice to have been had with my regular compadres, but... I'm celebrating this episode with a very, very special guest co-host, and it will become apparent in a moment or two why he is available for this episode. His name is Mr. Peter Merritt, aka Mr. Doo-Wop, and he is the host of a fantastic show on our local radio station here in Melbourne, PBS FM, called The Malt Shop Hop. Welcome to see here, Peter. Good evening all, good afternoon, good morning, Morris, wherever the show is being heard at, this, at the present time, it around the world. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Technology makes this available for people to listen to this any time they want, any hour of day that they want. It is. I, I, I know when with my show, I'm broadcast in the morning here, but I'm in the evening in the United States. Before we get into speaking to you about your show, let's just let the listeners know that the focus of this episode is going to be an interview that we're going to conduct in a few minutes with a director from LA. His name is Brent Wilson. And he's going to release a film this year called Streetlight Harmonies. And it's a history of doo-wop music, which is why I knew I had to reach out to you to be a co-host for this program, because you are Mr. Doo-wop. So give us a little bit of a background about the Malt Shop Hop. Now, how many years has the Malt Shop Hop been running? I've lost count as to how many years the Malt Shop Hop has been on air at PBS FM. Well, the show is over 31 years old. Wow. Uh, and I think... I've been at PBS about 22, 23 years. Where were you hosting the Malt Shop Hop before you came to PBS? I originally started at Plenty Valley FM and developed a show there. And as you would imagine, it was something unheard of to have a show of black music and music that was not played here other than a few things from the Platters or the Drifters. But uh, yeah, so I developed it and it, it just sort of grew and grew and grew and I left Plenty Valley and I was invited to go to 
PBS by Dave Ray, who used to have the famous Blues Avalanche mm. show. Now, funny enough, I used to listen to Dave Taranto Cheese Shop Show. Yes, yes, wonderful program. On the way to Plenty Valley. And on the way home, I would listen to Blues Avalanche. What I didn't know is Dave would drive to St Kilda listening to me <laughs> to do his show. And then when I when I disappeared, a mutual friend between us, uh, Glenn Nelson, who did Highway 49, a very famous blues show, told him I'd left. And within a week or two, I was on uh, PBS. But you were in St Kilda at the start, that there was like down um, Fitzroy, uh, uh, Street. Fitzroy Street. Yeah, 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 that's right. So you've had a couple of moves since then. No, just one move. We've gone to Easy Street. Mm. We, we were out of our lease and uh, we were in dire straits. We went searching for property. We found some and we hurriedly constructed a, a facility made out of basically 1,500 secondhand wall petitions. <laughs> Oh, my Lord. And we modified them. And we produce what we've got now. And considering it is a really functional setup that a lot of people are very complimentary about. And it's been a great home, but now we have to shift because the building's been sold and we're in the middle of appeal to raise money. We started on our new forever home, I hope, at the Collingwood Yards, which is only about 700 metres away. And that's going to be like a general arts precinct in Collingwood, isn't it? Yeah, it's the old Collingwood Tech. And mm. uh, yeah, it is. And, and that's what it is. We've been at uh, Easy Street for 20 years. Not a bad haul at all. So coming back to the music, I guess, and I'll put this question to Brent as well, but where did your love of harmony singing come in? I mean, were, were you naturally attracted to doo-wop music or was it via something else that led to doo-wop? Uh, it came through my grandmother, my black grandmother, mm-hmm. because my mother's heritage is African-American. I came here after being released from slavery and that. And uh, Gold Rush, more black people came here for the Gold Rush than white Americans. And uh, that's how her family came here. And my grandmother introduced me to blues, gospel, R&B, jump jive, and the vocal group music, of course, and it all just followed on. But I was particularly attracted to vocal group music the moment I heard 60 Minute Man when I was a very very young boy and I'm a super young, barely out of nappies and been a lifelong fan So that was just basically I guess a small part of an overall very rich musical heritage so it sounds like you you were listening as you say to you know blues and jump music and, and swing and I imagine that you know that followed on to things like Motown and Stax as well yeah, but not as it didn't overpower what I already I was already listening to because I was so enamoured with it that it was there. But I knew it came from what I was listening to, and I knew those singers in the in the soul era. Most of them came out of the R and B vocal group era, and without the R and B vocal group era, you didn't have soul. Right. That could be another film. Is that do what gave birth to soul? And a lot of soul fans want to deny it, but. Uh, it's a fact, and uh, we could wax on lyrically about it and have a lot of people say, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. But I, I honestly believe if Smokey Robinson hadn't heard Nolan Strong say, adios, my desert love, and copy it note for note, and then go to Barry Gordy, he wouldn't got his contract. That is a very direct link, isn't it? It is. Uh, Wilson Pickett and people like that, Wilson Pickett came out of the Falcons. 
even Barry White sang in a doo-wop group. You know, George Clinton had the Parliament doo-wop group. You know, wow. uh, you, you can just rattle off name after name after name. We're having a conversation the other day, like I guess a lot of people here in Melbourne, my knowledge of Andre Williams had gone as far as the 90s, his rebirth for mm. Uh, within the indie music scene. But, you know, you were saying, you know that he was originally a doo-wop singer. I mean, I have a great Andre Williams compilation with some of those old songs like, you know, Bacon, Fat and the like. And you said, well, that's that's doo-wop. And it didn't occur to me that it was. Well, that's right. When he was at uh, Fortune Records owned by husband and wife Jack and Devorah Brown, who, funnily enough, they had an old shop front and their son Gary recorded everything on a three-track Ampax recorder. And hence, the quality of their recordings is questionable at, at <laughs> best, bad at least, but sensational overall. And he was one of their mainstays, along with Nolan Strong. And they put him out in front of a group who were the $5, and that didn't sound cool, so unbeknownst to the group, they became the Don Ones. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so he started doing vocal group music. It was a match made in heaven. But he still carried on doing his own releases, but he was one of these enigmatic figures who couldn't be controlled. He would do what he wanted to do, and, and he did. He, he wrecked his life, and then he was resurrected. In the, somebody found him on the street in the 90s, realised who he was, pulled him out of the gutter, so to speak, put him back in the recording studio, and we saw we got Silky, the album, and things like that. And it was crazy, uh, that little period there, but... Andre Williams is one crazy cat. I spent the whole evening with him. I think he kissed me on the cheek a million times because every time <laughs> I, I brought up a memory, he would kiss you. And I didn't know what I didn't know what was going on at first. And then I realised it was his way of thanking me for bringing back a memory. Yeah. But it was uh, he was an amazing man to talk to. He should have had a bigger career than what he did. He ended up becoming a, a producer at Motown. Yeah, I think I had heard that. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many stories about great musicians of old who they faded because the times changed and musical interests changed. I guess like nine to five workers didn't have a superannuation plan and so they left this world in obscurity. So it is nice to know that at least when he departed off the planet that he realized that people did remember him or did love him or at least came to love him for what he was doing at the end of his musical career. So it, it's nice to know that he had some adulation at the end. Yeah, I don't think he realized till he got here that people even knew who he was. And then to have people quote song, well, I quoted songs that he'd forgotten. That and he, he said, did I record that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you did? Oh, I don't remember that. And uh, after that, you pl you recorded this one, and then after that, you recorded that one. Oh, okay. And uh, I wonder if I got my money for it. <laughs> <laughs> Which should be the catch cry for nearly every artist, out, black artist out of the 40s and 50s. But uh, he was no different to a lot of the singers. There's a great New Yorker called the Wrens, and the lead singer was Bobby Mansfield, beautiful voice. And... In the late 90s, his grown children were searching around in the, the, uh, the basement of the house and they found a stack of records and they took them up. They started playing them and they said to mum and dad, you know, who's this? 
and Dad didn't say a word. He just ignored it. And then their mother said, that's your father. Oh, my Lord. And they said to him, is this you? And he said, oh, yeah. It's not very good, is it? And they said, you're, you're joking. And Bobby Mansfield and the Wrens were incredibly good. And Bobby Mansfield had the most glorious of tenor voices. And you think, here he is. He didn't think he could sing. Probably made no money. He was ripped off. Put the, he kept his records, put them in the basement of the house, went and got a job. And the career disappeared. We lost out on having a great singer who should have had a great career. And that story could be echoed a thousand times and um, just like Andre they just drift away unheard of and yeah the Beatles helped do that by changing music and that's where I think people don't give the Beatles their due credit that their impact was massive and they changed sound totally they did and they had complete and utter love and respect for those musicians who they were covering like in their sets in Hamburg and who they covered like on the first four or five albums. Well, I mean, apart from A Hard Day's Night, those four or five albums are full of covers and you know, Motown, you know, You Really Got a Hold On Me, Money, all those great songs that had come from doo-wop and vocal harmony and, and guitar groups and the like. And Twist and Shout was by the top notes on Atlantic and people don't realise that it was a, a doo-wop group that actually sang Twist and Shout first. People just remember Ferris Bueller Day off for Twist and Shout. So I think we're going to have plenty to talk with Brent about. This is going to be a fascinating episode. I mean, as you say, there were a lot of musicians who didn't get their due, but I think the beauty of this film, not to give the cards away too early, but this is a complete and utter celebration of the music that we both love, doo-wop music. And I'm looking forward to getting Brent on the line in a couple of minutes. We're going to go to a quick break. We'll play the trailer for the film, and then we'll be back with Brent Wilson to talk about his new film, Streetlight Harmonies. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode number 80, with myself and Peter Merritt, both here in Melbourne. Huzzah. As long as there's teenage girls out there, I think vocal harmony groups will be around. No matter where you went in 1956, there was a group doo-wopping. Harmony, harmony, harmony. No band, no nothing. Street corner singing, getting that harmony to ring. Usually standing under the street light. Started sundown. It seems like there was a group under every street light. You didn't need anything that you and your friends could go on a street corner and sing. Nobody could afford to buy instruments, so you had to imitate the instruments. We paved the way for Rihanna, Beyonce, Destiny's Child. The pay was horrible. We as artists, we were struggling. Our parents didn't know anything about copyright. They didn't know about royalties. The record companies knew that, so they took advantage of it. We sold 77 million records. Somebody got the money, and sure wasn't me. Music has always had a way of being the great common denominator that brought people together. This music moved the country to a place where in the 60s, the civil rights movement was ready to happen. Music has no color. This is about love. It's for the love of the music. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see.
Episode 80 of the See Here podcast, Morris and Peter over here in Melbourne and in Los Angeles. We're really thrilled to have online the director of new documentary released in 2020, Mr. Brent Wilson, director of Streetlight Harmonies. Good afternoon to you, Brent. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Lovely to be with you, Peter, Maurice. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you here. Welcome to the show. It's very, very exciting. And I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. This episode marks the seven-year anniversary of See Here, so it's really thrilling to have you as part of this uh, episode. Vocal Harmonies is something that is obviously close to Peter because he's been doing his show on PBS FM for many years, but I've long been a huge fan of Vocal Harmonies and sang an a cappella group, so this is a very, very special show for us to be able to speak with you. Well, congratulations to you guys on seven years of pulling this off. And uh, yeah, like I said, you know, we were saying earlier, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a fan of what you guys do, and I, I love the show. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Much appreciated. So I already asked this to Peter. We did like a bit of an intro to the show before you came online. So I guess it's probably also fair to ask you, what are your earliest memories of being a fan of harmony singing? Was it doo-wop that drew you into harmony singing or were you listening to other things? Were you listening to, say, the Andrews Sisters or were you a little bit more contemporary? Were you listening to the Beach Boys or something else? What drew you to doo-wop? Interesting enough, I was a, a huge Beach Boy fan as a young kid, eight, nine years old, got exposed to the Beach Boys. And I don't know, like so many people, you fall in love with those harmonies, right? Um, there's something about them. They'll pull you in. We just finished a documentary on Brian Wilson that was a dream project of mine. And, and one of the things that we would always ask the question of so many of the Brian Wilson doc was, you know, what was the song that pulled you in? And it was nine times out of 10, the answer was always in my room. just masterpiece of loneliness and for uh, I think if you're a young kid you know and you hear that song you identify with it I certainly was one of those and then I grew up in the 70s too where I think you know there was no I grew up without an iPod or even a Walkman or you know I grew up before then um, there was no Disney radio so if you listen to music you listen to your parents music you know there was nothing there was no debate you didn't get in the car and mom and dad said hey what channel do you guys want to listen to it was like no we're listening to this <laughs> and so you know I I grew up here in the Supremes and I, you know, I just grew up here in all that great music. And then there was a rebirth, you know, there in the mid seventies that we talked about in the documentary with American Graffiti. And I saw American Graffiti and just fell in love with that film. American Graffiti. Baby, what's that? It's a movie. And it just kind of fell in love with that era. It looked cool. The cars, the guys, it's a seed that gets planted. And I think when that seed's planted early enough, you recognize 
good music. You recognize when something's good, which is something I'm probably sure about all the fans on of your show would recognize. If you're not exposed to something, but you've had those seeds planted of what's really good and what's not really good, when you hear it, you go, that's good. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was for me with, with, with these vocal harmonies and with this doo-wop music. It was just... I just fell in love with it. So yeah, for me, it was uh, it started very early. So this is a thought, and and Peter, I probably want your perspective on this as well. It might be a bit of an overgeneralization, but it seems to me that, like in that era, the classic era of doo-wop, that mid to late 50s period, I don't know if it was necessarily fighting for airtime with guitar-based rock and roll, but we sort of see the common narrative as guitar-based rock and roll was the rebellion against the parents' music and a lot of that exciting guitar-based rock and roll was often about sex. And a lot of what you hear in great doo-wop songs, it's more about romance. I mean, you know, you listen to songs like, you, know, you mentioned in, in the documentary, The Orioles, It's Too Soon to Know. Does she love me? It's too soon to know. Can I believe it? When she tells me so, is she fooling? Is it all again? Am I the fire? Or Earth Angel, or my very favorite doo wop song by the Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes for You. These are gorgeously romantic, beautiful songs. And I mean, were these songs also supposed to be a form of rebellion against the previous generation? I mean, it just sort of seems more in line thematically with maybe what the parents were listening to, but maybe because this was a drift away from gospel music, which you talk about at the beginning of the film. That was the evolution. Do you sort of see that this is in parallel with guitar-based music at the time, or was it rebellious like guitar-based rock and roll was? Uh, Mike, what I can say is that it was rebellious in that it was it was who was singing it. The fact that this was African American men and women was rebellious. That was unheard of. This wasn't Pat Boone. This wasn't Frank Sinatra. You know, these weren't the Bobby Soxers. And even though they were singing these lush romantic songs, you know, they sounded urban. You know, we talked a little bit about in the documentary how they, you know, you mentioned the Orioles and how that was the first group to really sound urban. If you go back to the ink spots, which we touch on a little bit, you know, the ink spots were expected to sound white. Um, They were not threatening. So that's where the rebellion came in. Rebellion came in and who was singing these songs and uh, the fact that they didn't try to hide that they sounded black, that they sounded urban. And that was very frightening at the time. And it all, of course, was a crucible. You know, it was all happening very much at the same time. Chuck Berry is overlapping with the, you know, with the flamingos. He had a lot, of course, a lot of the racier lyrics from some of those, you know, those really early songs that would sneak onto the radio. Um, so it was this kind of crucible was all happening and uh, at the same time, but it was definitely rebellious. It was just not as rebellious as the Sex Pistols, maybe. <laughs> Brent, we all tend to forget there was in 1951 there was a song that came out that I thought was absolutely pivotal because it was lascivious and direct links to those lascivious lyrics that made up uh, blues and, and rhythm and blues. 
It went onto the black charts, the race charts, as they would call them, or the sepia charts. But then it crossed over to the white charts. And the white parents that didn't catch on, it was Billy Ward and the Dominoes with Bill Brown singing 60 Minute Man. 60 Minute Man. 60 Minute Man. Look here, girls, I'm telling you now, they call me Loving Dan. I'll rock em, roll em all night long I'm a 60-minute man yeah, yeah, yeah. 17 weeks, this song is sitting in the white charts The kids yeah. are singing 60-minute man The parents haven't caught on It's a black group, black song And what the lyrics are And I think it is the most outrageously funny thing to happen But for me, I've always stated in all my years I think it was the most important song of the 50s because it said, here we are, this is what we can do, this is what we do, you will like what we do and we will prove it. And I get criticised for that statement, but I still stand by it. Oh no, Peter, I believe with you 100%. As a matter of fact, 60 Minute Man was, uh, it, it was... I can't remember, we spent so long editing it, I can't remember how it didn't make the cut or why it didn't make the cut. It could have been a clearance issue, but I wanted 60 Minute Man in the film badly um, to make that argument. You know, you have to make these choices, of course. Oh, of course. You know, you know, and, um, but no, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, uh, Billy Ward and the Dominoes, of course, the Dominoes, you know, a vocal harmony group. And yeah, they're singing about 60 Minute Man and they're not talking about a marathon. It just got right past the parents. Well, they did chicken, chicken blues and things like that. The, the Baltimore groups did a lot of things like that with the Swallows, with uh, a Roll, 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 Pretty Baby, Bicycle Tilly, which is a song from the 40s, mind you. What was the other it, it ain't the, too, the, about Annie's, Annie's Got One in the Oven? What was... Um, uh, it Ain't the Meat, It's the Motion was a Swallows song. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. Makes your daddy wanna rock. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. It's the movement that gives it the sock. That was coming out at that time, and it was an absolute poke in the eye to white adults, and and the kids loved it, and, and they carried it on. But this was the great thing at the time. The ballad was the A-side, generally 90% of the time, and the, and the up-tempo was the B-side. Back then, everyone wanted to play the ballad, but today I found on radio, people want me to play the up-tempo side more than the ballad until they become deputies of the music. Then they go, I want you to play the ballad. It's a it's a quite quite an interesting thing, but uh, it is, yeah. and it's it's one of those things that I think you know, it just has kind of gotten lost to history, right? I think it, those shadows of Elvis Presley and Little Richard, and you know that were truly just smashing down those walls, are so long that you know you forget about Billy Ward, right? You you forget about those guys that were there before, and and just didn't have the longevity. And they get lost. They get lost in history. Well, you look at his three main lead singers: Clyde McFadden, Jackie Wilson, and Eugene Bunford. My God, three yeah. singers of that category of that yeah. immense talent. 
the man was a gen- he was a madman, but he was a genius. He was a, at yeah. Juilliard at fourteen. Uh, As they always say, I think uh, it's said in the films, like you know, if you're gonna, you know, if you're a genius, sometimes you go a little crazy. <laughs> Phil Spector, Phil Spector comes to mind. Let's <laughs> that. Brent, before you came on air, Peter and I were having a bit of a talk and intro to the show, and he'd gone and pointed out to me actually a few days ago that a singer who I really admired from the 90s and then went back to his 50s material was Andre Williams, who I never really saw him until Peter pointed it out and said, no, he was completely doo-wop. And sort of coming back to the whole notion of lasciviousness, that song Jailbait. So tomorrow's the date for the trial of Jailbait. And this you watch and see. The young girl will go free, and you'll get one to three. So out the door she walks, to another man she talks, before you can count, from one to eight, another man in for jail bait. Imagine getting that on radio at the time, or even today you wouldn't get that on radio. Yeah, you couldn't get it on today. Yeah, yeah, no. It was so under the radar that, yeah, I don't, you couldn't even get it on today. Yeah, those guys, like I said, they were, they were pushing. And I can't even, can you imagine in, you know, 1951, 52, 53 or whatever, and you're a white teenager and you're just you're exploring and you're other you go all the way at the end of the dial to some little station in Baltimore or something and that song comes at you I mean it must have been just like you know meeting somebody from Mars I mean I can't even imagine what those kids must have thought having grown up with the, the, the sexiest and most you know incredible thing being Frank Sinatra right and I love Frank Sinatra but you know he wasn't breaking down any walls he was playing very safe he was just good and young and, and good looking guy and if you go explore at the end of those dials and you hear those songs coming out you must have just felt like you landed on another planet mm. it must have been so much fun well, they made it such an impact to radio that it was undeniable. The revolt against those radio stations by the white stations always fascinates me. And you put it in the movie, that little clip of these records have got to go, where the uh, station manager did that TV clip of smashing 78s. And I always found that hilarious and wondered, did that radio station survive that period where they said rock and roll has got to go? And rock and roll didn't go. It just got better and better and stronger and stronger and stronger. And the radio stations that wouldn't play it withered and disappeared. Absolutely. And I, and I did. I, I want to do that in the film. It's, it's, of course, you know, you're talking about a genre of music, you know, doo-wop and vocal harmony. And so I felt like really early on, you know, you, you could never really tell the whole story, right? I mean, I would need no, hours no. and hours to tell the whole story. And so my, my goal was to try to just kind of tell these small little chapters. And if somebody was interested, then they would kind of go off and kind of do their own, their own research, right? And that's why I wanted to include that section on the radio, right? I mean, you could do it and, you know, you could do a six-part 
documentary on on radio in the 1950s. But I, I did want to just include that little section about Alan Freed and the black DJs that were not getting the airplay that Alan Freed was and the importance and the bravery of those stations, even though if it was just purely capitalistic, to still do it, right? To play those songs and not to count out to pressure that, you know, we're seeing today, right? I mean, you know, it was just not too long ago that Tipper Gore was demanding that, you know, labels be, uh, records have labels on them. And, you know, so we're constantly revisiting this, this theme of trying to repress these artists. And I thought it was just important that people know that this is not a new thing, right? This goes back into the fifties and there was a lot of brave men in particular. It was, you know, at the time it was only men that were doing it, both white and African-American who were playing these songs, this music. Well, there was one major female DJ <laughs> in Gary, Indiana, and then in Chicago, and it was Vivian Carter, half owner of VJ Records, with her husband, James Bracken. And she had the famous radio show, Living with Vivian. So anybody who grew up in Chicago would instantly recognize that show. And I have a listener whose brother is the famous blues harmonica player, Corky Siegel. And his sister, Joy, lives here in Melbourne. And I did a little bit on Living with Vivian one night. Uh, one morning on my show and she rang me up and she said my god you've brought back my childhood (laughs) (laughs) Vivian was the owner of VJ Records you say which was so she would have put out one of the earliest Beatles albums in the States they did they put out the first Beatles album yeah Yeah. wow I didn't realise she had a radio show that's fantastic but but I'd like Brent I want to congratulate you on this uh, movie I I found it riveting and being a lifelong fan of and I've got to tell you I got my first record in 19 57 i was born in 53 the record was 60 minute man and that started me collecting and i still collect today but on my show i've done one thing i've always tried to play distaff singers or female singers because i've noticed over my lifetime of listening to online or since i could listen online american shows don't want to play female singers for some reason and of every show i play female singers and you included them but by doing so, you showed the music was for everybody, not just for the males. And I congratulate you on that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, uh, it was very much a conscious decision. I knew you couldn't tell the story of, of vocal harmony and not include all of those amazing. And again, we just touch on it in the film, right? I mean, there's its own film is, is, a, is a, you know, on the 60s female singers, right? I mean, there were just so many and they were so talented, so young and and their impact is just reverberating all the way today, as I think Lala Brooks says. I mean, you know, there's there's no Beyonce without Lala. And no, uh, no. you listen to the Crystals, and you don't hear Beyonce and Lala and the Crystals. Well, I'm sorry, you're just not getting it. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, well, 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 you can go back to the Deltas in 1954. You go back to the Joy Tones, all manner of groups, the Bobettes. Bobettes. Yeah, yeah, the Hearts with Baby Washington or Johnny Louise Wash, uh, Richardson, who was in it, and the mother, Jill Nell Sanders, owned JNS Records. And, you know, th- there are so many of these great female groups. And I'm trying to remember a, a female gospel group who one of the singers, the one they were Sisters, and one actually sang bass, mm. and and you listen and you think this is impossible, but <laughs> they 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 could do it, and and that's why I've always had a fascination that I have to play distar singers every show, 
And I get American listeners saying, why do you do that? They're not part of it. And I go, oh, yes, they are. Uh, they are so. very much a part of it. And, and they I need to be acknowledged. Um, uh, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I know Steve Van Zandt. I've read some interviews with Steve Van Zandt where he's really – pissed off about it, that there's just not been enough girl groups recognized. I know I just read that stand, just uh, an article not too long ago, like two years ago. And yeah, it's really a shame because, you know, they get behind the image of Phil Spector or, you know, the girls were interchangeable and you get into these arguments and, and it's, and it just ends up becoming excuses for not recognizing the talent. Quite frankly, I find the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a disgrace. I know I, know I shouldn't say it, but you go down the list, coasters, we keep drifting down, drifters. Hank Ballard comes in on his own. The Platters, the Impressions. We get Wilson Pickett on his own. We get the Isley Brothers or Isley Brothers or Isley Brothers. Then we get Frankie Lyman. Then we get the Shirelles. Gladys Knight did start in the 50s. But then we've got Parliament, who started in the 50s. Moon Glows, Flamingos, Dells, the Ronettes, the Lanthony, the Midnighters, and the Miracles. My God, what happened to everybody else in between? And then right. you, you look at the whole entirety of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you go, one hit wonders or who were they and you think as uh, little Anthony says in the movie what happened in between where did the chronology suddenly have this big bleep and it was ripped out and then we do the big jump over the hole and continue on because without that section you didn't have the next section or the section after that I, I, I am totally mystified and angered by it that I feel probably the dominoes should have been or the Ravens and the Orioles should have been in, in yeah. the first very first induction they started vocal group music and group harmony singing. They, yeah. they were pivotal. And yeah. I, I just find it infuriating. You know, with 12, or you could argue there's more than 12 because a lot of people don't realise George Clinton and Parliament were on land records in the 50s. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I do agree. I agree, Peter. I had, um, and that, you know, I opened the film with that, that statistic about the number of, of groups being left off. I'd say it's the main theme of the film is that yeah. how music has just been over looked you just feel like when you watch you know documentaries or you read about music it's just it's mentioned a little bit here and there but it the the heart of the film i think is just how this music was overlooked and its impact on what it had on us culturally um the impact that it had on us socially that was what i wanted to do with this film was just bring respect you know back to this music and and it got co-opted you know it's in you know malt shops and it gets kind of that co-opted thing and i felt like some of the importance and significance was just taken away and when we set out to do the film that was that was one of our goals was to just hopefully remind viewers that this music matters this music matters well i've held myself back because as morris knows and he's probably heard me say it a million times my favorite group of all time is the five royales with Mm -hmm. my favorite singer is the lead singer johnny tanner i say i wish if i had a singing voice i had johnny's voice the five royales steve cropper did with his album a few years ago he just paid tribute to loman pauling as a guitarist who was so influential but as a songwriter it was impeccable people don't realize dedicated to the one i love come from the five royales this is dedicated to the one i love But 
they were singing soul music in 1951. Pure Soul and Barry Gordy wanted them to be producers. And I think you showed that Five Hours and I was wrapped when you did it because I was playing Five Hours on radio 30 years ago and people were going, who are these guys? <laughs> They'd never heard of them. And I've restrained from bringing them up and I'm sitting here going, I've got to mention them. I've got to mention them. Okay. okay. I'm going to burst. I've got to mention, as you are with Brian Wilson and, and the Beach Boys, I can obviously tell that you are a huge fan. I am with the Five Royals and feel, my God, how badly treated have these people been? I just wanted to inject a bit of a theory here. These groups, as you say, were completely forgotten. And I sort of see like with the doo-wop groups or any vocal harmony groups as a community of singers. And then once the guitar took over and basically left for the most part, I mean, of of course, across the history of rock and roll, there's always been some level of harmony, but it always seems to be, to me, as an embellishment. And the guitar took over and we went into what I'm calling the cult of the lead singer. The audience, they say, wow, isn't so-and-so a magnificent singer? And it's always the person who noticed first. I mean, there's the guitarist that everyone sort of worships if it's a great guitar player, but it's often the cult of the lead singer. And there's not the emphasis on the community of the vocal harmony group. And everyone, there's even within the vocal harmony groups, of course, there's a lead singer, but everyone gets their shot out the front and there's a bass singer. I would love in those old doo-wop songs that the bass is often right out the front as well, but it's about what beautiful sound can we make together. And for some reason, once the guitar came in, it's basically sort of said, right, I'm out here to win the race. And maybe we were talking about the Beatles before, and the Beatles love their harmonies, but it was about the guitar, bass, and drums. And you listen to those great doo-wop songs, and yes, they have instrumentation, but the emphasis is always on community, the community of voice, as I call it. Yeah, very much so. It's on the emphasis on the vocals and, and, the, and the blending. Because as we say in the film, they didn't have money for instruments, right? Or the early 50s, you know, these kids that were, that were singing and playing and expressing themselves artistically, they didn't have money for instruments, so they made themselves sound like the instruments. And then, you know, like you said, as the, as the Beatles came along, and I think, you know, there's so much that happened, of course, with the Beatles. You know, the Beatles come in, they're rebellious, they're white. And, but that, there, there's something that also that coincides that we talk a little bit about in the film, and, and that's television. You know, they came in, you know, when we did the documentary, um, you know, there's just not a lot of footage of these groups. You know, uh-huh. we, got, we, the, we found the five satins, and it's a, it's a lovely piece, but this was before kinescopes. Um, a lot of the kinescopes and, you know, a lot of the stations at the time just kind of considered this throwaway music. So there's just not a lot of footage in, in that 50s television and films where they're catching the groups. But get into the 60s, the early 60s, there was the television revolution. You know, that was when it really began. And you saw the lead singer in a close up. And, you know, you saw what Paul McCartney looked like and you saw what John Lennon looked like and you saw them. And I think that just had a huge impact as well. But you're right. It's it's that loss of that lead singer. It was it was that kind of pre-television craze that the instrumentation, you know, became cheaper and, you know, buying being able just to be able to buy an instrument became cheaper and a little more affordable as Sears started making guitars. You know, you could go to the local, you know, uh, Great Western and buy a guitar in the early 60s. That wasn't, you know, instruments were a very expensive thing in the 50s and were not part of a house. And so it did. I think all of these things kind of culminated to help 
repress the legacy of, uh, of doo-wop music. So was it a limitation with the footage that sort of dictated who you could include in the film? Because, I mean, as you said earlier on, you could have really easily made a 10-part miniseries on, like, these three or four years. And also because Peter has been doing his show for 30 years or so and there's thousands of these groups out there so you include obviously the important ones there frankie lyman and the teenagers and the flamingos and the chords all great singers and all terrific songs but there's so much that you can only do as you've already gone and acknowledged in a 90 minute film as well as limiting yourself to a short, the short running time but was it also the limit of the amount of footage that you had access to that dictated what you could include in the story actually you know the, the, the footage was so minimal that we we decided really early on not to let that kind of be our guide and one of the things that we discovered that was a, a lot tougher than we expected when we began this which was just finding these artists you know reaching out you know these a lot of these girls and guys are you know they're in their 70s and 80s Sometimes they have emails, sometimes they don't, you know, they don't have managers or agents or they haven't kind of kept up with their careers or things like that. So there was a lot of just trying to actually track down these artists and uh, our lead producer, uh, Teresa Page, I thought she did a phenomenal job. And we also wanted to have, we knew we wanted to obviously have the African-American men groups, you know, Five Satins, and we knew we needed to have somebody from the Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, only two teenagers that are left alive, original teenagers. Knew we needed to have that because that represented the Big Bang that we talk about in the film. That was the first time that we had music by kid, written by kids, for kids. You know, up until that point, it was, you know, always music written by adults. I wanted to have Charlie Thomas, you know, the last drifter. There is another drifter left. Bobby Hendrix still lives, is alive in Florida with his wife, Ruth. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, Bobby's, oh, Bobby's doing really well. Oh. I talk to him quite often. He was a part of Ben and or Five Crowns. He was a part of the Five Crowns, or was he a part of the... No, uh, no. When Stingy George Treadwell would change the group, like the Five Crowns yeah. came in, and Benjamin Nelson became Benny King, Bobby Hendricks came in. He sang lead on a number of songs as a, a drifter. Charlie told us he was the last one, so, oh, my goodness, i got to let Charlie know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're going to need to make a new cut of the film then Brent. absolutely i wanted to tell the story of the five crowns and maybe you can tell the audience because it was i found i tried to tell the story in a a succinct way and i couldn't do it in less than like five minutes story in, in music history and I, I just could I couldn't find a way to make it succinct and, and make the work cut. But the story of the Five Crowns becoming the Drifters is just one of the great rock and roll stories of all time. But people think they're the second Drifters. They're actually the third. Yes, the third. When when Clyde put the first group together, they recorded. Everyone listened and said, this is terrible. They're all got virtually the same voices. So um, Erdogan said to Clyde, you better go find another group. So he went to the Frasher Wonders and got uh, the the Frasher Brothers, Gerhardt and Andrew. Gerhardt Frasher is my favourite Drifters lead singer on your 
promise to be mine. And they have Bill Pinckney, of course, the great bass singer, and they become the second drifters who become the first drifters. And then the five drowns become the second drifters who were the third drifters. But yeah, it's such a great story. But Benjamin Nelson became Benny King as a story in itself. Yeah, it truly is. And I, and I do. I, I think what the reason we wanted to kind of, you know, I wanted a whole section on the drifters and because I feel like they're the ones that were able to evolve. I felt like that was, you know, that was the only music, you know, you, up until you get into Motown, that was still, you know, there and the Beatles were taking over. Um, they were still trying to find ways to stay relevant. And those guys deserve a lot of credit for, for what they accomplished. Yeah, and the Dells. The Dells only finished up, what, less than a decade? ago yeah and they they started in 55 56 so they had a, her, an amazing career and you know dip my hat to them for what they and they fought through the uh beetle era like the drifters they adapted and reformed their sound and always remained very sophisticated and current and drifters did it but they had great writing and that, and that was the thing the writers they were employing to give them songs that were just phenomenal you I know mean, i wanted to touch on that on the film as well, right? I, I didn't want I didn't want the audience to come away not recognizing the importance of those writers. And we and we talk about that in the film. I think Charlie and Thomas says in the film, he goes, and then the Beatles come along and they were the first ones to kind of write their own songs. And that was a big thing, it seemed to be, to the audience at that time. You know, it felt more personal, I think, and they started to really kind of recognize the, the importance of the, of the songwriter. Even though these guys were, you know, Frankie Lyman and, 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 Jim, and uh, Jimmy were, I don't have, or had, wrote uh, Why Do Fools Fall in Love. It, it wasn't the norm, right? You had Lieber and Stoller writing everything for the Drifters. And, and so we, I really wanted to touch on the importance of, of those songwriters, Jeff Berry and, and, and everybody on kind of that Pentan Alley that was uh, was creating these songs deserve a tremendous amount of credit. You also raised a point a few minutes ago, which I wanted to sort of ask you something about. I mean, this is all speculation, but you went and said that these songs were often songs written by teenagers for teenagers and you know, the whole thing, you know, Frankie Lyman, they're all like, he was the baby at 13 and all the old guys were 16. I mean, you know, a decade later, I guess it was the same thing with the Jackson 5 doing doing what they did, all being so young. But for the most part, it seems that beyond that era, if you were like a, a young teenager releasing music out into the wild, then it was something of a novelty and sort of to be dismissed. But at the time, this was the thing, all these younger groups. And we went into a whole era. You had to be in your 20s, at least, before you were starting to put out rock and roll music that people were going to take seriously. What do you think happened? You know, I think it, my guess is, and you're right, I think it's speculative. I think it just became bigger business, right? And I think the more money there is, then the more control and the less risk averse the labels became. Because you're right, I mean, you, can you imagine today, you know, we, we talk about it in the film, you know, you would go to a building in New York and uh, you would walk up and down and knock on doors and audition. I mean, can you imagine 
if a young kid today went to the Sony offices and said, hey, I'm here to audition, they, you know, they'd probably get tasered. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, they, uh, they wouldn't just throw them out. They, yeah, they, they taser them, make sure they never came back. But then you could, you could go in and you can audition and you could knock on a door and say, here's my song. But I, my, I'm guessing, I think, is as usually is the case with innovation, right? The bigger it becomes, um, the more protective you become of it and the less risk averse you become, right? You don't want, you don't want to lose what you got. I think sometimes creativity obviously suffers from that. It's, you know, you see it in television, you see, I see it in film with the networks and with the film distributors. And I think you see it in music today, right? I, you know, there's just not, where's the next Nirvana? You know, I, you know, are those guys going to get that shot? You know, it's, or it's evolving a little bit. I think now we can get on YouTube and, you know, you can just announce yourself to the world and somehow find your way. But it's not the same as if you're professionally auditioning for a major music publisher or a major label like those kids could do back then. Um, so yeah, just a more innocent time. Technology has worked for us and against us, I guess. You mentioned Nirvana. I mean, there've been plenty of groups that came in its wake and there've been plenty of rock and roll innovators, but what was then in the mainstream is now sort of hidden in the shadows. Very much so. Yeah, I agree 100%. <laughs> I think an important thing about the, the kids and those acts back then is they would go to the labels with their song and they would instantly be bamboozled by technicalities. They'd lose the writer's credit. They suddenly weren't the composers. Alan Freed himself wrote sincerely for the Moonglows. Had nothing to do. Morris Levy helped write Why Do Fools Fall In Love. Those boys wrote that weeks and weeks before. Vivian Carter tried to write Goodnight Sweetheart. They tricked them out of the writing credits and uh, composition. And, and by doing so, the performers didn't get the money Yes. The the labels got the money was in the writing credits and the composing and production of the sheet music. And that's another thing too. Sheet music was so big for these songs back then that people would buy sheet music to go and sing it to. And these kids lost out. And if they wrote great songs, and they a lot of them did write great songs, it was they were gonna be lose out and not make it and in your movie they some of the artists mentioned. What happened to our money? We didn't get it. Yeah, and they, what is, they never what is uh, the land? And he say, he goes, we sold 77 million records. <laughs> Somebody yeah. the money. It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Merchant talks about it because, um, again, that's a big part of their story, right? These artists were firsts in a lot of categories, right? They, they did a lot of firsts and performing in the South, teen, you know, music for teenagers, by teenagers. But they were also the first to, to get ripped off. You know, some of the very first to truly lose out as a genre and as a group uh, of this new modern because you said at that point sheet music was very big but now 45s you know something that you could carry yep. your friends became a 45 was like a in an iPod <laughs> you know you would get yeah. stacked 45 and, and go to your friends and it was portable and just revolutionized music and 
And Jimmy Merchant talks about, you know, he says it in the film, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, and he goes, but, you know, you write this song, you go to a label, they say, you know, here, sign this, have you take this contract home and have it signed to your parents, have your parents sign it. And you know, Jimmy's parents, I think he said his father was a janitor at, his, at the school, um, and he made $15 a week. And the contract for Jimmy was going to pay him $20 a week to go out and sing. Why wouldn't my father sign that? You know, it's like, this is unbelievable. You're going to make $20 a week going out and singing a song. And I'm making $15 a week mopping floors. He goes, yeah, where, let me sign. The labels knew what they were doing. They, they knew the money in it. And they took advantage of these kids. Uh, Terry Johnson of the, um, of the Flamingos, you know, he says it beautifully. He goes, I guess we were just young and dumb. And, and their parents just didn't know any better. They just didn't think that it could ever anything could come out of it. And they did at that time pay them really well. For, for those kids to make $20 a week, they thought they were and singing, Sammy Strain, two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, goes, you know, God, I would have done it for free. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was on stage and I was singing and I was creating because I would have done it for free. And and so when you think about the guys from NSYNC having their publishing or things about the guys from the Backstreet Boys or, you know, uh, you know, pick your boy group or girl group today. Those guys, their contracts are looked over by professional attorneys and their rights are signed and sealed because of the losses of that generation of, of artists. That's why I, I applaud the Body Rate Foundation that goes out chasing after money owed to the artists. And I'm not sure if Bonnie's still doing it, but I really applauded her when she set up that foundation because she recognised there were so many artists who were absolutely ripped off. And there were people who owed a fortune. But can I just go back to the teenagers, just for a brief moment? I'm not sure if you're aware, Brent, that there was a music shop in New Jersey, and it was owned by a guy named Ronnie Italiano, who was known as Ronnie I. Now, in your movie, you have Eddie Rich from The Swallows wearing a UGHA T-shirt. Ronnie I put the United Group Army Association together, and he would have weekly shows with all the old artists he could find, and he would record him and young people. Ronnie died about 12 years ago, but during his life, he wanted to acknowledge Frankie. So we all donated and he raised money. He made this beautiful headstone. But with the fight between Frankie's three wives and the lawyers and that, couldn't do anything good. So it sat in the front window of Clifton Music. When Ronnie died, the headstone sitting there was probably going to get thrown in the rubbish. And one of the members, a woman named Jackie Nunes, who broadcasts Remember Then Radio, said, I'll take it home. In, she lives in New Jersey and sat it in her garden. Four days ago, it got craned out of her garden. It's going to the Michigan Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it's now sitting there in tribute to Frankie Lyman. I read that the other day. I read the same. I, I was so happy. And first of all, I, I didn't know the story. I didn't realize that, that even Frankie's headstone was being fought over. And that the wives, you know, so that made me sad. And then, but to recognize that now it's going to have a permanent home exited uh, and in Detroit and where place can, uh, where fans can go and pay their respects and acknowledge what this young man did. If, when you watch the film, I always say when you when you watch the film and you see those clips from those Alan Freed movies, right? And you you know they're they're all, they're in public domain and you can see them on YouTube, right? Alan Freed made a series of films, Rock 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 or whatever, and Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers is in one of them, and we include a couple of those clips. 
if you don't recognize the charisma in oh. that 13-year-old little boy, I mean, it is unbelievable. Young Michael Jackson had nothing on the charisma of Frankie Lyman and the confidence of that 13-year-old little boy. When you see those film clips, I always smile. I try not to think about the negative, and I think about the positive of what that young kid had. You know exactly who Joe Jackson watched when he, but he said to my boys, I'm going to make you a star. And he drilled them and drilled them and drilled them to be Frankie Lyman teenagers. And I will argue with anyone, Michael was cloned to be Frankie. 100%. Joe, Joe 100%. Jackson worked those kids day and night to be Frankie Lyman teenagers because he knew it was a winning combination. But you can also on public domain see that very famous clip where Frankie caused the absolute uproar where he takes a white girl out of the studio audience, brings her up on the little podium and starts dancing with her, which almost created a meltdown of the switchboard. There was a second, again, I, we're talking about a lot of things that aren't in the film because you could have done so much, but there was a, the race riots in Asbury Park, New Jersey, yeah. with yeah. Andrew Lyman and teenagers. So you hear this song, you know, you know, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? And it's such a sweet song. And to imagine that there were race riots over trying to ban <laughs> this yeah. song and it literally you know fell out into the streets because they tried to cancel the concert and stop the concert I, we went and shot a bunch of b-roll of where that took place in asbury park and i really wanted to include that in the section but i found as i was editing that when i went too far off the path that it, it kind of pulled you out of the story but yeah, when I think about, uh, you know, race riots and, you know, people tearing up stores and thousands of people protesting over, you know, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers in the Asbury Park, New Jersey, home of Bruce Springsteen and, you know, great rock and roll. They banned rock and roll. <laughs> they literally banned rock and roll from being played in that town because of Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. I loved that story. <laughs> I'll never forget Burma. Birmingham, Alabama. It was scary. It was a scary time in my life. During 1959, we did a six-week tour of one-nighters in the South. And that was a mind-boggling and eye-opening situation for all of us. We would see people outside. Sticks, guns. Better not get off that bus, boy. It was a heck of a time, man. You know, we knew what we were reading on in the papers. We heard it on the news. We saw things on TV about what was happening in the South, but we really didn't have a clue. To play the South was like, it was hard for me as a teenager, as a young teenager. I don't know about the other girls because they were 18 and maybe they were more mature than I was. I wasn't as mature to understand racism. And I was angry. Rough, man. Some of it was rough, you know. We had to go to the back room. Going to the south, we had to go to the back room to eat. We couldn't sit down and rest around. They wouldn't, they wouldn't serve you. They wouldn't serve you back then. So one of the critical parts of the movie is the whole issue about that 
tour, which I'm sure was, you know, one of many, but you talk about that tour on the bus where you had a whole bunch of these great singers who, and they were touring around that. They went to the South. And this is such a common story, not just in your film, but in other music films. And I just sort of wanted to do a little bit of a digression. There was a, a film director who we spoke to a few years ago about a great documentary called Two Trains Running about blues music fans from the East Coast and blues music fans from the West Coast who, unbeknownst to each other, were going down to the South to try and find their blues guitar heroes who had gone missing in action since like the 40s or something and they wanted to bring them to the new enlightened blues music fans white music fans in the 60s but they were doing that completely oblivious or at least they weren't going to get involved with the the civil rights movement because it was at the same time as they were down there looking for their blues music heroes there were the people once again from the east and the west of the country coming down to the South to enroll African Americans into voting. That was a fascinating documentary. So a good part of your film is first of all talking about those musicians or those singers who went down to the South and felt their lives threatened and they couldn't go into the front of a hotel. They had to go in by the back way, even if it was somewhere where they were performing. So they were good enough to be performing, but they were not good enough to be just doing everyday sorts of things. It was still that horrible segregation that was going on. But you make the contention in your film that it was the music of that time, the doo-wop music that played a large part in the civil rights movement to be started at all. If rock and roll and if doo-wop music and R&B hadn't appealed to young white teenagers, would it have been a long time coming, a lot longer time coming, if at all, with the civil rights movement? Yeah, I, I believe that 100% with all my heart, that it was that it's rock and roll, um, whether that's, you know, that rock and roll was Chuck Berry or, you know, whether it was the Drifters or if it was the Flamingos, these African-American vocal groups or artists, their first exposure, and we talk about in the film, is that white teenagers, you know, who are 16, 15, 16, you know, in the mid-50s, their first exposure to black culture is going to be music, right? It was this music. This was the first time. I'm sure they'd seen blacks, but they didn't go to the same school. They didn't eat in the same restaurants. They didn't, you know, there was no exposure to black culture until it came through their radios. And then when it comes to the radios and they like it, and then maybe they go see them in concert and maybe they're on one side of the theater and they're on the other side of the theater, but they're there together now. And we talk about that in the film where they're dancing together and they're going, you know what? These people aren't evil. They're just like me. They're here loving the music. And then those same kids who are now going to be in their early 20s in the 60s, and they have been awakened and they're now registering voters. They're now marching. They're now standing side by side. They're listening to Martin Luther King. It's because, in my opinion, it's that first exposure to their culture, right? And it was the first time they didn't listen to their parents and think that they were all evil or corrupt or whatever racism was being spewed out at the time. And they were exposed to their culture. That culture was music. And, well, so uh, and, and, it, and, it, and it bound us together. And, and I do. I really do 
believe that those teenagers then were marchers and they were signing people up to vote. And it's one of the great kind of untold stories of rock and roll and music of the 50s. Brent, when you look at it, for most of the white kids of the 50s, listening to that black music was their first act of defiance. Absolutely. They were not listening to their parents, right? It was an act of defiance. And the the music appealed to them because their parents didn't like it. Their parents wanted to listen to Pat Boone or, or Frank Sinatra warbling away. You had the white kids sneaking into the Apollo trying to get up. The girls were trying to get up front to see the Sonny Till leaning out over the, the stage with the microphone. And the story goes, he was one of the first to have underwear thrown on stage at him. Because yes. he, he was he was so, so handsome. But it was white girls and they were sneaking yes. into the Apollo. And this was their act of defiance against adults saying, no, we want something of our own. And they're yes. giving it to us. And if you don't like it, I don't care. And I think they carried it on. So as you said, it wasn't, and I honestly agree with you that it was a very important factor in the movement into the 60s. But you also had, I think, DJs in the later 50s, early 60s, like Wolfman Jack, who broadcast over the whole of North America and could even touch into Canada, who really pushed the music and pushed the music and the defiance of the music with his all-night broadcast that you could hear in your bed springs, in your fillings, and it added to the, I know, the groundswell of movement. I think Absolutely. the rest, it just all moves in one movement. Yeah. I think if you think about, you know, can, we, can we talk a little bit about the DJs? Because you can't, you know, you can't tell this story without some of the bravery of the DJs. But you're right, and you think about the power of those radio stations, all these, you know, back then there were so few radio stations, or much fewer radio stations, so they, were, they had greater broadcast power. And then, you know, for technical reasons we won't get into at night, that power, you know, was even greater. And so you think about these kids staying up late at night, you know, they don't want to go to bed and they've got these first time little transistor radios and, you know, it's not the big unit that's down in the living room. Now it's something they can have in their bedroom. And there's some black radio station in Cleveland and you're in Louisville, Kentucky, or you're in, you know, Nashville and you're picking up Memphis and these little black stations and you're in your bedroom at night and you're, you've got your little radio and your lights are off and you're hearing music that just comes from another planet. It, it, it's just a romantic image that I think is real. You do, you get this confluence of events that all kind of came together in a really special time in pop culture and in history to form where we went in the 20th century, in the last half of the 20th century. To me, it's it's, it's a profound time. With this documentary, Streetlight Harmonies, and with Brian Wilson, I I always start with respect. You know, I, I love and respect what these artists did and what, and what music does and what, what popular music does. The latter part of the film, which I'll, I'll bring up in a second with the collaboration, the modern day collaboration, which is just beautiful to see. But you print on the screen at one point that Benny King, you'd reached out to him and he was going to be a part of this documentary. Sadly, he passed away before you could film him. But... Did you actually get to speak to him or was it all just emailed messages? Did you ever get to have any contact with him? No. So here's the, the, the story with Vinnie King. is, We had, 
I want to say there were there were a couple of artists that that passed away literally while we were trying to reach out to them. One I'll mention real quickly was Diamond Dave. Gosh, I can't remember Dave. Does everybody just calls him Diamond Dave? Somerville. Uh, yes, thank you. And we were going to interview him. I wanted to interview him because the Diamonds was a white vocal group who, in my opinion, just humble opinion, was the only group who ever covered a black song that was as good as the black song. And I just found that fascinating. I wanted to know the backstory, and that song was Little Darling. So if you hear their song, Little Darling, I won't sing it, but everybody knows Feel it. free. <laughs> but it's a great, great song. And they do with a lot of soul and a lot of energy and spirit. It's not watered down. And I really wanted to talk to Dave about that. He fell and broke his leg. And on our way up to interview him, he lived up towards Santa Barbara. And literally, he's like, hey, guys, you know what? I, I, I fell and broke my leg. And why don't we do this in a, in a couple of weeks? We'll do it out by the pool. And, you know, I'll be in a cast and just don't show my cast. Like, of course, you know, absolutely. But he literally was like, you know, maybe I should get my leg looked at. And he got pneumonia and passed away a couple of weeks later. So that was heartbreaking because we were literally on our way up to see him. Benny King, I had told Teresa, our producer, if we only get one interview, we've got to get Ben King. We've just got to get Ben King. If, if you're going to do these films, these films take forever. And they're really hard. You know, no one in their right mind would, would do a music documentary or a documentary for the money. You know, there's a lot easier ways to make a buck. So you've got to do these things out of love. And I'm, a, you know, just a huge fan of the Drifters and a huge fan of Benny King. And so, you know, I want to meet my heroes. You know, that's what I did with Brian Wilson and <laughs> with this doc. And so if you're going to do this stuff, you might as well have fun. So I was like, we've got to get Benny King. We've got to get Benny King. Well, Teresa could not track down Benny King. And she would leave emails and phone calls and messages. And every, about once a month, I'd check in with Teresa. You heard from Benny King. You heard from Benny King. No, nothing. Nothing back. Nothing back. I'm like, gosh, he tours. I know he's out there. He's been on The View, which is a television show here, while we were shooting. And so we were up in New Jersey, and we were shooting. I think we were shooting Charlie Horner, our historian. She goes, you know what? He's got a fax number. There's a fax number. Let me just see if I can send a fax. And so we're up there in New Jersey shooting, and she sends a fax. This is, you know, 2019. I don't even know, they didn't even know they had fax machines still. She sends a fax, and Benny King responds in five minutes. Literally wow. back and goes, yep, I'm sorry. I don't have cell phones. I just have my hand landline. I don't have a computer, but I do have a fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be in your film. And he goes, he goes, I'm a, he goes, how about Thursday or something like this was a Monday. He goes, how about Thursday? He goes, I'm in upstate New York. She said, that'd be great. But while we were filming up there in New Jersey, this was in February, there was a huge snowstorm that was coming in. You know, the biggest storm of the year, one of those things. And we thought, you know, we'll never make it up to upstate New York. And even worse, we're going to get snowed in, you know, up here in New Jersey and 15 below zero. And we're going to be here for a week. 
So we said to Ben, uh, we're going to go back to L.A. We finished our interviews today. We're going to go back to L.A. and we'll come back out to see you in a few weeks after this storm. And he goes, oh, that sounds great. Um, we got back to L.A. And, and Benny King passed away about two weeks later. And it just it just broke my heart. So. I never got to speak with him. Teresa did and just said he was lovely. He agreed within five minutes of getting our facts that he would be in our film. I, of course, asked Charlie Thomas about him. And, you know, Charlie Thomas and, and Ben were brothers, soul brothers. And Charlie reaffirmed everything that we wanted to do, uh, or, or everything that I wanted to believe about Ben and uh, and just his art and his artistry. So that was a sad moment and that's that's why we get that little moment i think that little tribute at the end with uh, with stand by me and, and i think it it um we're able to pay some tribute to Ben, but it also, the theme of that song, I thought reinforced what those guys all together stood for. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid, no I won't be afraid, just as long as you stay, you stay by me. It was really nice that you had the meeting of the original line of singers, you know, many who you'd all spoken to in the film, like Lala Brooks and Charlie Thomas, and... Uh, meeting with Straight No Chaser and, and they were singing beautifully together and, and you know Lala Brooks was saying oh you boys could all be models you're all so good looking you know just they, they just all seem to get along so well and it's just a beautiful way to end the film and I just can't imagine that you would have ended the film any other way that was perfect can I upset you I'm going to hold up my collection of phone numbers in there is Benny King's phone number from when I interviewed him four years ago. <laughs> Where were you? You're teasing him. That's not fair. I'm sorry about that. Eddie Floyd got me the number, Mr. Knock on Wood. Oh. And in Gaynell Hodge, who's a good friend of mine, and unfortunately he just recently passed away, he helped me get the phone number. And then he said, you know Eddie Floyd? I said, yeah, I know Eddie really well. As Morris will testify, he did some wonderful little drops for my show. So I got a phone number and I rang it up and uh, I said, uh, is this Mr. Benjamin Nelson or is it Mr. Benny King? And he goes, well, boy, you can call me anything you like. <laughs> <laughs> and and I got, there it is. It, it's, the number is no longer connected, but in my, there you see it was in my telex, Benny King's phone number. It's a that small world. fantastic. Yeah, no, well, I could have, could have used that, Peter. <laughs> he was amazing to talk to. He was so humble very quietly spoken. He was just delightful. I'm so glad to hear that. They always say, like, you don't want to meet your heroes, and but I've had really good experiences and uh, with all of mine, and, and I didn't get to meet Ben, but I'm so glad to hear that. For me, I think that what he would have done, too, for the film is that he would have given it a face, you know what I mean? Because, again, you know, so many of these vocal groups... You know, you can't pick out who the lead singer of the Flamingos is, or you couldn't pick out the lead singer of the Chantels. But 
Benny was able to kind of cross over, right? And so I was, I really wanted him to help connect the dots for the audience. Yeah. That was a big part of it. Had you considered Gaynell Hodge to talk about as he started the Platters and he was part of the Hollywood Flames, the Turks, and then Paul pile of other groups. He was so prolific and he was still singing up to a year ago, living in Europe. His influence was incredible. He was sick. We had reached out at the time. He was East Coast, Philadelphia, I think, or uh, New Jersey. So he was going to be on the East Coast, but he was sick. Um, Cancer. He's cancer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was, again, one of just kind of the difficult aspects of the film was, you know, getting these guys. For the ending, you know, the ending that you were talking about, Maurice, we were, you know, we wanted to represent kind of all of the groups, right? You know, I I wanted Charlie from the African-American vocal groups. You know, we wanted Lala from the kind of represent the girl groups. And then we wanted Vito Pacone to represent the Italians. We had to postpone the shooting of that uh, for several months. Vito had eye surgery. That's what it was. Vito had had eye surgery. And, you know, it was just having a tough time recovering from surgery. You know, as we saw with Larry and then with Ben, it's, you know, these guys and girls are, they're national treasures, but they're of an age where if you don't get their story down, you know, they're going to be gone forever. You know, we didn't say no to anybody, you know, no, if somebody no. reached out to us or we were able to connect to someone, you know, we didn't say no to anybody. And I got, that's my, my credit is to, to our producers, Teresa and Tim, who said yes to everything every interview and financed every interview so that their stories could be a part of the film. With what you did at the end of the film was so engaging. It reminded me of that show you had over there, The Sing-Off, the acapella show. My very close buddy, Jerry Lawson, was on the film, the late, great Jerry Lawson. Jerry found it quite, because he took talk of the town with him, who he hooked up with, because he'd left the persuasions years before. And what he found unbelievable was every young a cappella group all wanted to sing with him. They didn't want to sing with anybody else. They just wanted to sing with Jerry, and they did a few performances. But the only person who didn't quite like it was Ben Folt. He didn't get Jerry. And, oh, really? And he thought Jerry was past it. Jerry, right up to the day he died, still had the most beautiful voices and could still sing. But every group that was on that, and a lot of them had the modern beatboxing and all that, they just yeah. wanted to sing with Jerry. And I saw that at the end of the movie. Those young singers were so excited. They were like five-year-olds at Christmas at the Christmas tree with all the presents going, which one do I have first? Which, But here I am. I'm going to sing with these people. These are my heroes. And I thought that that was the most perfect of ending. Here I am. I'm handing the torch over to you. And it's up to you now to carry the legacy on. And then you hand the torch over. And I think it was a really important, almost subliminal, as you did right throughout, which I loved, that you kept putting flyers for groups the Cardinals appeared, one of the great Baltimore groups, and other groups appeared. You couldn't mention them all, but you put the posters in the background everywhere, and it formed a a beautiful montage of the groups of the time. And yes, you were limited by time, but you made every minute became five minutes because of what you were able to put into that moment. And by the ending of the show, you put years into those minutes by putting a modern young group with these wonderful veterans who could pass on their years of experience and pass the baton. And I thought, yes, this is the perfect it's not an ending. It's the, the passage of time. It's not an ending, and it's thank not going you. to be an ending. Thank you very much. No, that, uh, that's beautifully said, and thank you. I mean, it was 
we worked on that ending and I'll go back a little bit. Thank you for bringing that up and, and appreciating that because I did with every little transition. I just wanted to show images or cards or posters of every, you know, as many groups as I could get in. Even if you just saw their names or you saw their photo with a little bit of a lower third, I just wanted to get in as, as much as I possibly could and keep the film entertaining because I knew I wanted the film to move and to just keep moving forward and, and so that an, an audience, a broad audience, could could enjoy it as much as uh, an aficionado would. I had two editors working simultaneously for three weeks for that ending. There was just so much footage and it was all great. I mean, those moments where they're telling those stories and they arrive and they meet and recapture that moment and they just start telling stories. I mean, it was like an hour and a half of those guys telling stories. And every story was just as funny as the other. You know, the story of Lala's 13 and she's taking away Charlie's gambling wins. That was oh, classic. Yes. That was classic. <laughs> Charlie's pounding on the door. Give me back my money. It's like, no. <laughs> and it's just, those guys, when they got together, it was like that all day long. They just told stories. And those young kids from Straight No Chaser just hung on every word and appreciated just being in the room with them. When they went to record the songs, they recorded uh, Stand By Me and they recorded Up On The Roof. And both of them are available on the soundtrack. On the roof, the only place I know Where you just have to wish to make it so Let's go up on the roof, on the roof, when I, I go home tired and There's a soundtrack to the film. Up on the roof is on the soundtrack. And I positioned my cameras inside the studio. I um, said, okay, camera this, you're going to do this, camera this, you're going to do this. And then I just sat back and listened. I just was thrilled to be in the room. I didn't direct. I didn't go over and see what those guys were doing. I just said, all right, you got this, you got this, you got that. And I just sat back and I listened to those guys do three takes. And I think of each song and the take that's uh, that's in the film is take number two. And it's just straight through, purely live. That's just take number two. And how those voices and how those that blending comes out is to me just, I don't know, makes you believe in God. <laughs> Well, I'm really hoping that the audience listening to this podcast out there will say, right, I'm sold. I've got to see this film. So what are the opportunities for people to see this film? I should also sort of like go back. Before COVID, were you able to have any cinema screenings of this? We did, yes. Yeah, we, we fortunately we got out right before COVID and we had an amazing night in New York at Doc NYC. And uh, there, it's, uh, it's on YouTube if anyone's interested. We brought in pretty much, I'd say about 50% of the people that are in the film came out to New York for that screening. It was a sold out screening. I 900 people, something like that, sold out, standing ovation. Just one of the best nights of my life. The feedback has been good from music fans, both people who remember those days and people who just sort of heard something about 
this doo-wop era. Has the feedback been positive? The feedback has been amazing. I haven't heard one negative thing, I mean, from anyone. I was expecting maybe some, oh, you left this group out, you left that group out, you could have done this, you could have done that. But I think, in which, you know, there's no argument against, right? You know, you, you know, as we said, you couldn't tell, really tell the whole story. So I was expecting more of that. But I think by the time people finish the film, they're just so happy that the story is told. And, um, and you're hearing what you're hearing. There's 32 songs we cleared for the film, um, which is not cheap. You know, I wanted to get in it just as much music as we could. Um, so again, my credit to the, to the producers for, for, for that, for the, the ability to just put in as many masters as we could. And I was nervous that night in New York because they're all there. Charlie Thomas, Vito Bacone, Fred Paris, you know, in the still of the night, Lala, everybody's there. And they're seeing the film for the first time. I didn't want them to see the film without seeing it in a, with an audience. And so, you know, I'm scared to death after this movie. And, you know, we go to a little restaurant afterwards and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to hear it now. Uh, <laughs> you know, now they're not, you know, it's now they're away from the press and, you know, and every one of them to a person just came up and thanked me and hugged me and our producers, Teresa and Tim. And they just all really appreciated the fact that, that we took the time to tell their story and to try to tell it in a manner in which we did, which was, you know, we, I wanted it to be high end. You know, we shot on 4K. I wanted the backgrounds to be colorful. I wanted the graphics to be colorful. I wanted the film to look and feel like it's in the present. You know, I didn't want it to look and feel dated. I think all of those artists really, really resp responded to that. And then I've got heard from a lot of people, as you said, who said, oh, my God, that brought back so many memories. Or people would come up and say, I get this a lot, too, where, you know, that was my dad's music. And I hear that music and I cry because I know my mom and what that song meant to their mom and dad. And now I get why it was so important to them. But I love hearing that. So it's, you know, the whole process, um, I have to say, has just been, uh, has been a true, true blessing and, and just a genuine, genuinely lovely ride. Your love of the music obviously shines through in what you do. It's joyful, celebratory music, and you've made a joyful, celebratory film, despite the fact that, you know, there's the couple of dark moments in the film, pre-civil rights and what was going on in the South. But overall, this is a celebration of a wonderful period of music and it seems fresh and bringing on the contemporary musicians to say this is what it did for us i mean it seems to be a common thing of a lot of music documentaries but here it really seemed like it was needed you brought that in so overall i can imagine that people went out smiling not just because of a nostalgic waft but because the music is so joyous and you've conveyed that really well. Anyone who's listening to this podcast that thinks, right, you've sold me, how do I watch the film? Where is it available for me? Sure, to watch? We're, on, uh, we're on iTunes. You can find, uh, we're on iTunes and all the other kind of voodoo um, and the other kind of digital distributors. And we're also on Amazon Prime. We'll put some something in the show notes. I want people to follow up on this. Thank you. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you. Brent, it's, it's just been wonderful. Peter and I, with I think I can speak on behalf of Peter here that we both really enjoyed this conversation with you. Absolutely. I got I got to say, you know, hats off. I mean, you guys know your stuff. <laughs> I know that Peter knows his stuff. That's why I made sure I got him on. But um, uh, look, you better bring your A game when you come talk to you guys. You know, it's, uh, yeah, you got to bring your A game. You guys know your stuff. It's been great. So much 
much fun to talk about it and and the love that you guys show for music films and it is really comes comes through and I love the the sense of community that, that comes that comes with this um, and, and talking to other people who love music and music films uh, yeah it's that sense of community that connects us is something that always is uh, something we all strive for right something we all want to participate with so thank you guys for doing this no our absolute pleasure all right we're gonna go back to a break now and I'll come back in a couple of moments and talk about what will be happening for episode 81 which will be the first episode of 2021 you're listening to see here podcast with morris here peter over there and brent somewhere else over there we'll be back shortly I really hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. It was just so much fun to be able to have Brent online and talking about that magnificent film Streetlight Harmonies. I urge you to search it out. I'll put some links up in the show notes as to how you can find it. Also, big thanks to Nate Camier at Leyline Entertainment for arranging that interview for me. Huge thanks to you, Nate, because without you, well, that interview wouldn't have gone ahead. So much appreciated. Also, huge appreciation goes out to Mr. Peter Merritt, a.k.a. Mr. Doo-Wop, the host of the Malt Shop Hop on PBS FM here in Melbourne. You can tune in via your radio sets. Remember them at 106.7 megahertz on your dial. Or if you live outside of Melbourne or anywhere in the world on the planet, isn't the internet wonderful? You can go to pbsfm.org.au. He broadcasts every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Do the arithmetic and work out when you should log on to listen to this incredible program. But the wonderful thing is it, it does get archived so you can listen for your oral pleasure at your leisure. While I'm busy showing gratitude, I'd also like to thank the wonderful folk who run the Pantheon Podcasts Network. At the time of me recording this, they have 63 podcasts available for your enjoyment. I think when we started up with them maybe a year ago, there were maybe like 25 or something like that. So 2020 has been a good year, at least in the sense of Pantheon expanding their empire. Uh, There's lots of great music discussion shows there, plenty of variety. You'll find something that appeals to you. Some of my favorite shows are Deeper Digs in Rock, Highway Hi-Fi, Long May You Young about Neil Young, I'm in love with that song, Rocks Back Pages, uh, Song Facts. I know I'm forgetting a couple of others at least. My brain fart of a memory story of my life. Search them out at pantheonpodcasts.com or type in Pantheon Podcasts into your podcatcher of choice. As I said at the start of the show, this episode marks seven years since Wendy, Bernie and Tim and myself started See Here. 
I really wish that Bernie and Tim were available for this one, but they'll be back early 2021. Our huge thanks go to anyone who's ever downloaded a show or recommended us to a friend, and also to anyone who appeared on the show this year, either as a co-host or as the director of a film. Next month, there's going to be a pretty busy month for those of us at see here at this stage there's two regular episodes plus a bonus projection booth episode that fits our agenda so we've gone from one episode to three episodes for next month keep an eye out on the facebook page for details of what's coming up at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast if you want to send us an email you remember those old-fashioned things called emails i like getting them uh, don't get terribly many but you never know uh see here podcast at gmail.com finally i just wanted to send our condolences to everyone in the orbit of our great friend mike mcpadden he'd been on an episode of see here and an episode of love that album but he was mainly known for his work either as the social media guru at Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. He'd gone and written two incredible books in heavy metal movies and teen movie hell. He had a couple of fantastic podcasts, 70 movies we saw in the 70s and Crackpot Cinema. Mike definitely knew his stuff, but it was more his warmth. Uh, He could also be very, very funny, very, very cynical. Uh, He was always worth listening to. So um, please go back through the back catalogue and listen to those podcasts. Hopefully they'll stay online. But our love and respect goes to the late Mike McPadden and to uh, his family and anyone who had the good fortune to be his friend. So with that, I just want to say, be nice to each other. Look after each other. 2020 may be over, but 2021 is still going to have its challenges. Wear a mask, please. Keep your distance. Call some friends you haven't seen in ages and listen to a great record or watch a fantastic film with them like you used to do. Good night, sweethearts. Good night. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you. I really must say, oh, good night, sweetheart. Good night, mother. Oh, and your father. Like it if I stay here too long. One kiss and talk, and I'll be going. You know I hate to go. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you. I really must say, oh, good night, sweetheart. Good night. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> I love it.
From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.